0: Holy father, uh, as we come into this topic this morning, I pray that you would, uh, prepare our hearts and help us to, uh, as we go through this, this subject matter to truly be able to be open to what your spirit is teaching us and Lord may your presence be with us. And Lord, I ask that you would help me to be clear and to, um, Go through this material in a way that honors you. And just ask for your strength in this. In your name, amen. (coughs) I need an adjustment here. (laughs) I think I touched it. Okay. I'll try not to touch it. Today we'll be looking at um, a subject that I think I'm very uh, ill-qualified for. Um, we'll be looking at the glory and the holiness of God, and and um, this is a subject that, uh, as you get into it, um, and and as you will see, as we get into it, um, as as human beings, we we find ourselves confronted with um, a God who is truly awesome. And that word is, is a word that is, um, I think, really only applies to God. Um, <clears throat> and so as we come into this, uh, I just asked you to be kind of thinking about that. The reason why I had this question, can you handle the truth, uh, that's what we get confronted with when we come into God's presence. And as we'll be looking at uh, today, uh, we are. Uh, our adult class is a part of our parafamily family ministry that's designed to come alongside our families in their journey from brokenness to wholeness. And so uh, that's what we want our classes to do is to help. They're, they're for all of us. As we are in this journey together to uh, to support this and and as uh, probably all of you know uh all of our classes um, are are going through from children on through adults, going through these materials um, our our memory verse proverbs twenty one one the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord, like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes and um, that's kind of the theme for the first section of these lessons that we're in. Um, last week we we talked about Daniel. Um, uh, we'll be looking at next week, the new covenant that's, uh, prophesied, um, looking at God's protection, restoring of worship. That would be the coming back into the land, um, from exile. we will be looking at Esther. An amazing story. We'll be looking at uh, visions that uh, God gave to Daniel. Um, re- restoration of God's law. And basically going all the way up through uh, the end of the Old Testament. Uh, with the prophets. And so, uh, that's what we'll be doing with this uh, quarter's sections. But today, we're looking at um, our awesome God. And be um, doing it... Um, First with a little bit of review from, from the past uh, few weeks, uh, then getting into today's passages, which are going to be, a, today's going to be a lot more um, scripture reading, um, but it's because <laughs> there's just no other way to do these sections, and so we just take them for what has been written. seem to be stalled on this slide. Okay, thank you. Well we did pass the timeline. Here we have the timeline of, of what we've been covering so far. It takes us this is pretty much everything that's dis- discussed. Are described in the Old Testament. um, uh, At least from the time of Abraham. um, Up through the end of the prophets. And we are pretty close to the end of it. Over here in this uh, exilic period. uh, Right after Babylon destroyed Jerusalem. And so that's where we are at this point in time. And our primary target today is Ezekiel. But we'll also be talking about Isaiah. Uh, getting into Isaiah, and then also um, John, actually. Okay, and so Israel, as we've looked at in the past, that they were the fulfillment of God's covenant with Abraham uh, as a nation. Remember, God had told Abraham, "Your, your descendants will be as the stars of the sky and the sand of the sea. And so Israel, the nation, was a fulfillment of that. And that God was intentionally using this this line of descendants from Abraham to carry out his purpose. that went clear back to the Garden of Eden when God um, told Eve that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. The beginning of the gospel all the way through, we find God's plan working. And so Israel was part of that plan. But being the fulfillment of God's covenant, by the time we get to this stage, it's now been divided and ultimately scattered. Um, Yet, uh, and we see most of the survivors of the nation of Judah have been taken to Babylon in three separate deportations with a small remnant left to tend the fields. And so it would be a natural conclusion, if that's all you knew, to think, well, that's the end of God's plan. He's he's decided to do Plan B, but no, God still's doing His plan. He doesn't have a Plan B. <laughs> uh, he doesn't need a Plan B. Uh, he's all wise and He's all powerful, and He makes His plans work. Uh, in this fall of a nation, we find that God is still faithful and untroubled in keeping His covenants and fulfilling His plan of redemption for mankind. And God still sent prophets to instruct and encourage the faithful while confronting the rebellious. And the prophets have been one of the significant uh, players that we've been looking at over the last uh, many weeks now. Um, Looking at several different prophets and, and the role that they played, how God has used them to continually bring his message of repentance and calling people back to to faith in God, and uh, and we, what we've looked at is how the the role of the prophet the prophet themselves, is they've had some some pretty some of them pretty tough lives. God has used those uh, lives that they've lived to for significant things. And and R.C. Sproul writes this about prophets. He says. The prophet in the Old Testament, Israel, was a lonely man. He was a rugged individualist, singled out by God for a painful task. He served as a prosecuting attorney of sorts, the appointed spokesman of the supreme judge of heaven and earth to bring suit against those who had sinned against the bench. The the prophet was not an earthly philosopher who wrote his opinions for scholars to discuss, he was not a playwright who composed dramas for public entertainment. He was a messenger, a herald of a cosmic king. His announcements were prefaced by the words, Thus saith the Lord. That's in his book, The Holiness of God. And if you never read that book, I encourage you to read it. It's, it's uh, something that should be considered a Christian classic. Um, it's something that's very, very Eye-opening as to what holiness is all about and what it really means with God. And it's excellent uh, for your your own study. Um, Last week, uh, we looked at one of those prophets. We looked at the early part of his life. We looked at Daniel. And we we, uh, talked about how... um, that Daniel and his three friends, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, were taken as young men, um, teenagers likely, and uh, taken to a foreign land, to Babylon. And uh, what they went through as far as their uh, initiation into that culture, going from one culture to a completely new culture, new language. And uh, so Pastor Mike took us through all of that, and, and, and we talked about, how he and his three friends um, so revered God um, and so ordered their lives to follow God's way rather than the dominant culture. Uh, and really gives us an example for how we live in our culture too. That, that we don't need to just float along with the culture, but rather we're to, to, we're to go to God. And and uh, what we need to be concerned about is the culture of God or or the culture of Christ. What is it? that that uh, is important for us to follow and uh, as we've talked about in the past how culture can be such a dominating and usually is a very dominating uh, presence upon the thinking of people you go to different parts of the world or different cultures and everybody sort of subscribes to things without even thinking about it uh, without they just go along what is it that God calls us to do God calls us to do something that's different God calls us to his laws, his ways. And so we need to be a lot more thoughtful. And Daniel and his three friends were very much more thoughtful of that and and showed their reverence to God by their commitment to do that. And then we'll uh, see in later times the actual prophetic ministry of Daniel in later lessons. But today uh, we're going to be getting into visions of God and his majesty. And uh, we're going to be primarily looking at Ezekiel. He's our, our primary person. Uh, but we're going to also do quite a bit with Isaiah and John because they have similar experiences. And we want to kind of fill out this picture um, that Ezekiel experienced. And, uh, and so this is, this is where we'll be. But this is where we find ourselves uh, kind of confronting this question that's posed, can you handle the truth? One of the things I was thinking about um, earlier this week as I began reading um, in, in preparation for this, reading the passages and s- thinking about what that would be like, trying to put myself into their place and imagining uh, what would it be like to be taken captive, maybe put a, have a hood Put over your face, you know, you're kidnapped and taken somewhere. And you're brought into a room and the hood is removed. And it's this intense, bright light that completely exposes everything. And all of a sudden, I am confronted with the unadulterated, pure truth. That is what Isaiah, Ezekiel, and John all experienced. Coming into this presence of God is this complete exposure to truth. And how does that affect us? How, does, how would that affect me? Well, we see how it affected them, and, and there's much to learn from that, what, what their experience was like. Uh, but how would we handle the exposure um, when all of a sudden we're brought into this place where nothing is hidden? And you know how we are with each other as human beings. We always hold back a little bit. Even with our spouse that we trust and love, there's still a little bit that we hold back. And that goes clear back to the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve uh, ate of the fruit and they discovered that they were naked. And uh, they needed to cover themselves. And and people have been covering themselves ever since because there's a little bit of shame. There's that... That part of us that, that we really don't want anyone to know about. And we're right to think that way, by the way. That's, that is appropriate. Um, and yet we find um, these three people go into that place of complete exposure. And we we'll see how God also deals with them. And it's pretty amazing to see. So let's turn to Isaiah chapter 6. We're going to begin with Isaiah and do him first. And we'll talk about his vision of God on his throne. Isaiah 6 begins In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, behold, this has touched your lips and your iniquity is taken away and your sin is forgiven. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here am I, send me. He said, go and tell this people. Keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull and their eyes dim. Otherwise they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and return and be healed. And I said, Lord, how long? And he answered, until cities are devastated and without inhabitant. Houses are without people and the land is utterly desolate. The Lord has removed men far away and the, and the forsaken places of, are many in the midst of the land. Yet there will be a tenth portion in it, and it will again be subject to burning like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is in its stump. The year King Uzziah died is thought by some to be the beginning of. Um, no, let me go back. The beginning of. Uh, The ministry of Isaiah. Uh, Others believe that Isaiah actually started a little bit before Uzziah's death. Um, So it's unclear. Had Isaiah turned 30 at this point in time, he would have been in his 90s uh, when he died. Um, So it's it's possibly started a little sooner. The typical starting place, though, for um, a priest and, and Isaiah was a priest would be the age 30. So, uh, that's not made clear for us, but it does. What's important is that when in that year, um, that's when Isaiah got this vision. Now, King Uzziah, let me go a little bit ahead here, um, and recover some of this material we covered before. These are some of the Kings of the Kings of Judah. And, uh, going down to joash joash was the second reformer and um under the leadership of the priest jehoiada uh, as a child began to initiate many reforms uh taking israel back to worshiping god alone and and so it was under joash and then late his later years he he had some faltering in there his son amaziah continued some of those reforms although not perfectly but uzziah for 52 years, was king, and he was a man who who uh, strictly uh, continued those reforms, and is described as a good king. He's actually a a, a pretty amazing person. Uh, was a builder, loved the soil, is known for for his his uh, uh, vineyards and gardens and so on, and described as a builder and and built much of the city of Jerusalem, and built armaments. Uh, Things that are described in in, in the Chronicles uh, sound like catapults on the walls and and uh, these big machines of, 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 of defense for the city. And so that was Uzziah. Uzziah was one of those men and God blessed him uh, because of his uh, leadership uh, within the city and then uh, or with the nation. And then his son Jotham also continued those reforms. So it's in that. Isaiah it's at the end of Isaiah 's reign gets this vision Isaiah I picture as, as a person who's uh, in this culture now that's that is fairly comfortable with where it is. The status quo seems to be pretty good and uh, so Isaiah coming into his his prophetic ministry as a priest. Um, would would look out and say, things are going in the right direction, probably. That's probably how he thought. We don't know for sure, but it seems like his confrontation here in this chapter is very startling. Um we we know that at the end of Uzziah's reign, he went into the temple to offer incense. He got full of himself thinking he had he was a pretty righteous guy and he should be able to to come to God himself without the help of a priest. And uh, the priests there confronted him and uh, tried to hold him back. He was the King Uzziah was struck with leprosy and had to be had to go. And he lived the rest of his life in solitude. But it was that um, that zeal for the righteous things of God within the, the priest community. That's remarkable there in that story and it could have been that Uzziah's father was one of those priests that actually was there in the courtyard uh, resisting Uzziah. And so this is the, the kind of where Isaiah is coming from. And yet as we read this passage, his, his coming into the presence of God, into this throne room, is, is the sudden realization that the status quo isn't very good. The status quo is terrible, in fact. And um it, and so Isaiah is confronted with this this sense of of doom. When he says, Woe is me, that that is a very serious uh, act of, of a recognition, of condemnation. That that things are really bad. And and it, one of the translations, I think it's the King James Version, he he says, I am undone. And so this this idea that uh, when he comes before God, God isn't patting on the back and saying, "You guys are doing really great right now." No, it's it's an understanding that's immediate that that we're in trouble. I am in trouble, and and so he describes himself that way. Um, R.C. Sproul. Uh, describes this in this way. He says, Isaiah explained it like this. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. He saw the holiness of God. For the first time in his life, Isaiah really understood who God was. At the same instant, for the first time, Isaiah really understood who Isaiah was. And that is a um, a realization that is helpful for all of us, isn't it? Uh we... Uh, come to that place of being able to just bow before God and say I know who you are and I know who I am one of the most terrifying things throughout human history for mankind is the holiness of God we'll be looking at at John a little bit later but that word apocalypse um, is is a Greek word that just means revelation means to reveal but we use that word um, over and over in our uh, vocabulary to describe impending doom. Something that's terrible is coming. Why? I think it's in the back of man's mind that when, when God reveals himself, and in the book of Revelation, it reveals himself through Christ, that, that Jesus is, is formally revealed to humankind, that, that it's doom for man. Uh, And and man is right to be afraid of God because he is holy and because we are not. We're not holy. We don't measure up. And so, again, from the Garden of Eden, mankind has been hiding from God, been afraid of God's holiness and been right to be afraid. And yet God has, through his mercy and kindness, reached out to man and, and has been drawing man to him and providing a way for man to come to him. And, that, and we do rejoice in that gospel. And we find that, that in, in this section where Isaiah is confronted with, with God, what does God give to him? Well, God gives to him a, a vision. Uh, first of all, he cleanses him. Isaiah said, I'm a man of unclean lips. And so an angel comes uh, with, with a burning coal and touches his lips and cleanses him. Uh, picturing the cleansing that God offers. God offers cleansing for us. God doesn't just leave Isaiah there. Um, then he commissioned him to take a message. And what we can find out is that the that the general status quo of the nation was not very good. In fact, we can read in 2 Chronicles 27, verse 2, uh, where that's the passage where Uzziah has died, and his son Jotham is taking uh, over as king, and here's a description of the people. But it says, "But the people continued acting corruptly." That's their dis- that's their description. So there is within the culture this this current, a pretty strong current of of wicked uh, living, of defiance against God. And even though 52 years have, have, of King Uzziah's reign has been this general overview um, uh, influence of, of godliness. Um, there's still this, this strain of wickedness that's underneath it that is coexisting. And that's pretty typ- typically human, isn't it? That's pretty much how we are. And so uh, in, in this case of Isaiah, he saw his own sin. God confronted him with his own sin. So then God could prepare him to confront the people in their sin. And that's what we see uh, in, in uh, this confrontation. Now we move on to Ezekiel. So you turn with me to Ezekiel chapter one. We can read about his experience. We'll begin reading in verse one. This is now it came about in the 30th year on the fifth day of the fourth month while I was by the river Kibar among the exiles. The heavens were opened, and I saw visions of God. On the fifth of the month, in the fifth year of King Jehoiachin's exile, the word of the Lord came expressly to Ezekiel the priest, son of Buzi, in the land of the Chaldeans by the river Kibar. And there the hand of the Lord came upon him. As I looked, behold, a storm wind was coming from the north, a great cloud with fire flashing forth continually, and a bright light around it, and in its midst something like glowing metal in the midst of the fire. Within it were figures resembling four living beings, and this was their appearance. They had, they had human form. Each of them had four faces and four wings, and their legs were straight, and their feet were like a calf's hoof, and they gleamed like burning, burnished bronze. Under their wings, on their four sides, were human hands. And as for the faces and wings of the four of them, their wings touched one another. Their faces did not turn when they moved. Each went straight forward. As for the form of their faces, each had the face of a man. All four had the face of a lion on the right and the face of a bull on the left. And all four had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces. Their wings were spread out above each had two touching another being and two covering their bodies, and each went straight forward. Wherever the spirit was about to go, they would go without turning as they went. In the midst of the living beings, there was something that looked like burning coals of fire, like torches darting back and forth among the living beings. The fire was bright and lightning was flashing from the fire, and the living beings ran to and fro like bolts of lightning. Now look down to verse 22 says now over the heads of the living beings there was something like an expanse like the awesome gleam of crystal spread out over their heads under the expanse their wings were stretched out straight one toward the other each one also had two wings covering its body on the one side and on the other i also heard the sound of their wings like the sound of abundant waters as they went like the voice of the almighty a sound of tumult like the sound of an army camp whenever they stood still they dropped their wings And there came a voice from above the expanse that was over their heads. Whenever they stood still, they dropped their wings. Now above the expanse that was over their heads, there was something resembling a throne like lapis lazuli in appearance. And on that, which resembled a throne high up, was a figure with the appearance of a man. Then I noticed from the appearance of his loins and upwards something like glowing metal that looked like fire all around within it. And from the appearance of his loins and downward, I saw something like fire and there was a radiance around him as the appearance of the rainbow in the clouds of a rainy day. So was the appearance of the surrounding radiance. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face and I heard a voice speaking. Okay, um, so this is the what Ezekiel sees, and it's pretty pretty descriptive um, but if you notice as we're reading through it, there's a lot of, of times where he uses the word "like" or "like as" because there are things here that he doesn't he's never seen before, he doesn't know how to describe, so he just tries to get something close to what we would know about, and so he uses the word "like." But this is a very awesome thing. And his, re- his response to it was to fall down. Just to fel- f- fell on his face. Um, but then he's going to, to be commissioned. And so in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, Then he said to me, Son of man, stand on your feet, that I may speak with you. As he spoke to me, the Spirit entered me and set me on my feet, and I heard him speaking to me. Then he said to me, son of man, I am sending you to the sons of Israel, to a rebellious people who have rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. I am sending you to them who are stubborn and obstinate children, and you shall say to them, thus says the Lord God. As for them, whether they listen or not, they are a rebellious house. They will know that a prophet has been among them. And you, son of man, neither fear them nor fear their words, though thistles and thorns are with you. And you sit on scorpions, neither fear their words, nor be dismayed at their presence, for they are a rebellious house. But you shall speak my words to them, whether they listen or not, for they are rebellious. And that phrase, that description, rebellious house, is repeated seven times through the first three chapters. Um, I think God is is pretty full up with with their attitude. Um, So so God is describing him this way uh, over and over again. And he's calling Ezekiel to this this very difficult ministry uh, from exile. Ezekiel is in exile. If you remember from our past lessons, uh, Ezekiel was in the second deportation. Um, Daniel was in the first one. There were three altogether from Jerusalem to Babylon and Ezekiel's in the second one. And he's in, uh, by the river Kibar, which is, uh, kind of Southeast, uh, according to one map I looked at, um, of, of Babylon and the river Kibar is, is a tributary into the river Euphrates. And, uh, it, uh, goes is is much like a canal in in appearance Okay. Okay. Technical difficulties. Please do not adjust your sets. Um So anyway, that's where a large encampment is of uh, Judean uh, exiles. And he lives there among them. And that's where he sees this vision of God. And so let's uh, finish up this section and go over to chapter 3 and read verse 6. And we'll pick it up in the middle of the verse there. He says, But I have sent you to them who should listen to you. Yet the house of Israel will not be willing to listen to you, since they are not willing to listen to me. Surely the whole house of Israel is stubborn and obstinate. Behold, I have made your face as hard as their faces, and your forehead as hard as their foreheads. Like emery harder than flint, I have made your forehead. Do not be afraid of them or dismayed before them, though they are a rebellious house. One of the things that that we see in God uh, bringing his prophets into this vision of uh, the holy place of God is um, it prepares them to do something that otherwise is an impossible task. And what Ezekiel's preparation is, is to have to go to these rebellious people who are not going to want to hear his message. Um, these are people, many of them who, that are in exile. Some of his messages to be directed to those who are still in Jerusalem uh, because this is before the complete destruction of Jerusalem. It says there that, that, that God's going to make his face hard as flint because their hearts are hard. Their faces are hard and he's going to have to be able to match up to that. And. Uh, that's one of the things that, that we see with God's preparation. God is preparing a prophet to be able to handle uh, what's going to be coming against him. And so we, Ezekiel lost his strength. We we see he's he falls down as one uh, who has no life. And uh, God picks him up. It, it actually describes the picking up of, of the prophet. And uh, the, through the spirit of God. And God then equips him. So out of his weakness comes the strength. And, and that is just like Isaiah. Out of Isaiah's weakness came the strength to be able to do uh, what God had called Isaiah to do. Now we see the same thing with Ezekiel. That out of Ezekiel's strength, God is going to make him strong. To be able to confront the, this uh, obstinate um, and rebellious people. Uh, we talked about a few weeks ago how jeremiah had written to those who were in exile jeremiah is still in jerusalem had written to them how they were to live how they were to (coughs) to plant gardens and raise children and just continue on with life because um, they were not to listen to the false prophets who said they were going to be coming back any day now uh, they were to to actually plan on being there. That the time of exile was seventy years, and so Ezekiel is is now is living with these people who are expecting to to be going back now back to Jerusalem. But Ezekiel and so there's this hard heartedness, this stubbornness that he's having to confront, and he's having to live with. One of, one of the interesting uh, passages, if you read down into. Verses 12 uh, to, four, to 15 talks about him um, uh, being empowered, and, and actually, he's in the spirit. He got, he's in, having this vision, and it describes him as being enraged uh, in, in his spirit, and that the hand of the Lord was strong upon him, and, and that the Lord took him and placed him down in the river, or next to the river, by all the other exiles, and he sat there for seven days. And the reaction of the people around them was great consternation. And it's kind of a, from our standpoint, a little bit humorous, at least to me. I mean, I have a weird sense of humor. But um, but here's this prophet just sitting there uh, for a week and, and uh, causing great consternation among them. One other point about Ezekiel. We'll not go and read all these passages. I encourage you, though, if you've never read through these God shows Ezekiel, who is in Babylon or in, in the area uh, south of Babylon, the, the uh, departure of, the, of uh, the spirit or the presence of God from Jerusalem, from the temple and then from the city, the whole city. Um, again, this is before its destruction, but God takes Ezekiel and shows him uh, through his spirit in a very miraculous and supernatural way, what was going on, the false worship, all of the things that were taking place, even on the temple grounds, um, that that uh, sacrilege was the big thing. And uh, it was just, just common. And, and how the glory of the Lord left the uh, the temple and went out into the courtyard, then goes out to the city wall, then goes to the Mount of Olives, and then is gone. And the poignancy of that whole section is that no one seemed to notice? That everything just went on, and no one. There was no outcry. There was there was no uh, weeping. There was there was nothing. They just continued on as if they were saying, "Well, you were still here." You know, they didn't care that God had left. And um, it is it is a, a very tragic scene um, as God. God withdraws his glory from that place of worship and it will soon be completely leveled and destroyed now if you turn with me to Revelation chapter 1 we're looking at John's experience And let's read from verse 9 to 19 in chapter 1. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance, which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice, like the sound of a trumpet, saying, Write in a book what you see, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands in the middle of the lampstands. I saw one. Like a son of man clothed in a robe reaching to the feet and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow. And his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace And his voice was like the sound of many waters. And in his right hand he held seven stars. And out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in its strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last, and the living one. And I was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. Therefore write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after these things. <coughs> and so we see here John having a an exposure to Christ, to uh, to the glorified Jesus and and so he um even though John is, you know, one of the disciples, he spent Uh, Those three-plus years with Jesus uh, probably knew him for much, much longer than that. It's believed that John was actually related, um, so may have known him all his life. And John uh, had served him faithfully all this time, and yet when he sees him like this in his glorified state, it's too awesome. And so he falls down as a dead man and Jesus picks him up and and gives him a message for the seven churches in Asia Minor and then at the end of that message go over to chapter four he takes him and gives him a vision of of uh, the throne room of God and we'll pick it up in verse five Out of the throne came flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first creature was like a lion, the second creature like a calf, the third creature had the face like that of a man, and the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever, and will cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God to receive glory and honor and power for you have created all things. And because of your will, they existed and were created. I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne, a book written inside and on the back sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals and no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. Then I began to weep greatly, because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne, with the four living creatures and the elders, a lamb standing, as if slain, having seven horns, And the seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each one holding a harp and a golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, "'Men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. "'You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, "'and they will reign upon the earth. "'Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels around the throne "'and the living creatures and the elders, "'and the number of them were, was myriads of myriads, "'and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, "'Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom, and might, and honor, and glory, and blessing. Hallelujah. We should all stand and sing the Hallelujah Chorus right here, right? <laughs> yes. Uh, and th- this is amazing. And every created thing which is in heaven, and on the earth, and under the earth, and on the sea, and all things in them, I heard saying, To him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb, be blessing, and honor, and glory, and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, "Amen." And the elders fell down, fell down and worshipped. John, uh, his experience—he he falls down as one is dead, but he, God raises them up, and he comes up with great expectation. And we see how great that expectation is in his response to no one being found worthy to open the scroll that scroll is there and and he he knows that there is some there's the plan of god is yet to be revealed and he he wants to see what it is how where it's going to go and so then it is opened by the one who is worthy there's uh something there that uh just jumped out to me as i was i was preparing this and the, the statement there where he says, that, where the um, the angels and the elders uh, sang this song, and they said, you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon earth. That what Jesus did was on, on the cross, when he uh, made, fulfilled this plan of redemption that goes clear back to the beginning, um, what he did was seal the victory in the battle between God and Satan for the lives of humanity, and that that uh what Jesus did was create a kingdom that uh there, that he didn 't lose humanity but he now has a kingdom and priests to to um to God and so uh, this is a defining uh, uh, description, I guess, of the victory that, that um, Jesus wrought, that he is victorious. So what are we to to make of all of this? There's a lot here. I can only do a few things, but these are th- some thoughts I had on this. Uh, The first one is that our confrontations with God are meant to change us and to prepare us for the tasks that he has for us. Now, God is much gentler with us, and his confrontations with us usually are spread out over a long period of time, in fact, our lifetime. And he's continually preparing us as needed for the tasks that he has for us. Um, It's not as strenuous as Ezekiel and uh, as Isaiah and John's were, these, these were very powerful, uh, overwhelming confrontations. But God does confront us uh, in, in his ways. And maybe it's with a sermon that we hear uh, <coughs> or some, some experience that goes with that. It could be uh, different ways that God confronts us. It's in, in the reading of his word, but he does confront us and prepare us. For tasks, that these confrontations aren't for nothing. They're for a purpose, and he always has purpose. One of the things, there, there was another person who had an experience like this, and that was Paul. And Paul writes about it in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Only he doesn't just go into detail and describe it. All he says about it was, it's indescribable. that that's that's and paul was not a person that had a shortage of vocabulary right he he knew how to write and how to describe things but that wasn't his purpose in, in in sharing this experience um and you remember what he got out of it a thorn in the flesh right that's what he got that was his his souvenir um and and so you can read about that in um in 2 Corinthians twelve, but one of the principles that that Paul really makes uh, a strong point of there is that it's out of weakness, out of our weakness comes the strength, and we see this pattern with the other um, uh, situations, uh, with with Isaiah, with uh, Ezekiel, and with John. That it's out of out of their their weakness, that, that God gives the strength to to accomplish the task. But when we have this confrontation, the psalmist wrote this, if you, O Lord, should mark our iniquities, who could stand? And, And that is one of the things that, you know, as I was preparing this, I mean, thinking about this thing you know, how could we possibly stand before this god um this is this is a a a, a thing that that is powerful and and this whole idea can you handle the truth to to come before god and be confronted with the truth about yourself it, it's difficult for me to think about that to, to actually have to go into all that detail god do we really have to go there do I really have to look at that? Um, Can I really handle the truth? But that's what it is in coming before God. God is truth. And uh, full exposure before God is what will happen when we are confronted with God. There is a hymn, an old hymn, that uh, I recently became reacquainted with. Um, And its words express... uh, our, really our, our hope uh, and our faith as Christians and um, so the the first verse goes like this my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus blood and righteousness I dare not trust the sweetest frame you know that frame that's, that's man's ideas man's philosophies the, the philosophical frameworks that man comes up with I dare not trust the sweetest frame but holy trust In Jesus' name. The new version has a different chorus, and uh, it's Christ alone, cornerstone. Weak made strong in the Savior's love. Through the storm, he is Lord, Lord of all. And that's who we rest on. Um, The old chorus is, um, On Christ's solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. And, of course, that comes from the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And so, when we build our, our beliefs and we live our lives based upon the solid rock, then we have that ability to stand before God. Second um, Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10 says, Paul writes, We must all stand before God and give account for our deeds. We will all stand there. We're all going to have that exposure, that brilliant exposure of pure truth. And are we going to be able to handle it? Well, only if we've built on the solid rock. Jude 24 to 25 has this amazing, amazing statement. Now unto him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless, with great joy to the only God and Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. That is, that is um, the, the hope that we have, that he's the one who sustains us and he's the one who's preparing to present us blameless or faultless before the presence of his glory. So the last verse of that hymn goes like this. When he shall come with trumpet sound, Oh, may I then in him be found dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless stand before his throne. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your grace and for the opportunity we have to be called into your family. And Lord, as we worship you, as we live our lives before you, may we live with gratitude Knowing that you, being an awesome God, a God to be feared, are also a God to to be loved and worshipped. And that you are a God who has opened your arms to us and provided a way for us. And Lord, may we live our lives in remembrance and reverence and in great joy because of what you have done for us. And and with that great gratitude that we can have for you, Amen. Thanks.